You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. I'm Mark. And I'm Simon. And are you ready? Knoxbox! <laughs> yeah, it's week four of Knoxbox. Grant Knox, who is also known as at Cult of Morbius on Twitter, Grant Knox's guide to his revisiting all of the Stephen Moffat era of Doctor Who, mm-hmm. in which he talks us through the stories as he watches them and lets us know whether he preferred them or not to the first time when he watched them, uh, because uh, he wasn't a terribly big fan the first time, and having listened to our podcast, uh, he and I arranged for him to give us his feelings on a second viewing. And this week, he has watched The Pandorica Opens and The Big Bang, and he says, A cracking finale for the series. The final few minutes of The Pandorica Opens are stunning. Plenty of fun and entertaining timey-wimey stuff in the second part. The resolution with bringing the Doctor back doesn't bother me anymore. The only misstep is Amy's insistence on trying to kiss the Doctor. A very enjoyable and entertaining season finale. And then I asked him to give us a few words on you know, his overall feelings about Series 5. Overall, he says, I really enjoyed Series 5. The majority of the episodes have definitely improved second time around, with the most noticeable being Amy's choice. It's strange how Vincent and the Doctor and the Lodger both fared poorer on the rewatch, as I know how highly regarded they are. Maybe I was having an off day. The Silurian two-parter is definitely the low point of the season, truly awful. I did find that the Moffat stories all feel of a piece, whereas the rest doesn't seem to fit the overall jigsaw he is building. The crack showing up in those episodes feels a bit like when you would spot Bad Wolf showing up in places from Series 1. I enjoyed the season that much, I have just purchased the Blu-ray. On to Series 6. Oh, there you go. Oh, we'd better come out of Knox's box as well. Are you ready, guys? Yeah. Box. Actually, his feelings on that seem to mirror my own very closely indeed, to be frank. Because I really liked The Lodger and Vincent and the Doctor first time around. And then on subsequent viewings, I've not found them quite as good as I thought they were. Mm. Whereas a lot of the other stories have gone up in my estimation. Hmm. Anyway, we've uh, <laughs> three emails. Shall we do them now? Let's, let's we... do an email at uh, least, yes. Yeah. Let's do one email now, and then we'll perhaps come back to the other two later on. This is from the Reverend Captain Hollow Porro. Hey, revs up. Amen. Uh, right, I'm going to have to be very careful here. Oh. <clears throat> yeah, very careful indeed. Actually, we had this email a couple of weeks ago, and I completely forgot all about it, and he brought me up on it, thinking that the reason... I'd not read the email out was because of something he says about Leela in the, the second paragraph, which we'll come to in a second. He says, Well, I listened to episode 93, and God damn it, JR man, you blew my mind clean out of my probic vent. So you said, This was, I think this must have been the one about 
um, the literary agent hypothesis oh, and, yeah. you know, suspending disbelief and such. He says, so you said that things that couldn't be explained could be explained if you just imagined some extra scenes, scenes that never made the script. He's talking about things like where I said you didn't see the scene at the end of Angels Take Manhattan where they get rid of the angel in the graveyard because you don't need to, right? Yeah. But he carries on and says, it's genius, JR. It's often been discussed that the fifth doctor never seemed that distressed when Sadrick was killed. Well, that's because he paid the Cybermen off to set up the whole of Earth shock <laughs> in that scene that didn't happen. Okay, here's the tricky one. <laughs> Not quite sure what I'm going to do about this. He says, what about the Leela shower scene and her nether ping pong ball juggling? <laughs> Rice on a bike. He didn't actually say nether ping pong ball juggling, but I've had to edit that myself. <laughs> he says, I'm not allowed to say things like that in the alternative podcast, not without Al No getting his bell out anyway. He says, the Leela porn scenes totally explain why she married Andred when he met her at the Capitol pole dancing club and why we missed the subsequent <laughs> dates and romance. We just had to imagine the extra scenes. Yes, JR, he says, I take my hat off to you on this one. We can explain anything away or add to our enjoyment of any episode ever by just imagining those extra scenes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I thought people did that anyway. I imagine scenes all the time to explain away. <laughs> kind of we don't want to know about the scenes you imagine with Clara, <laughs> not, Lee. Not those. <laughs> He oh, says, yeah, that's just before he goes, he says, just one thing. How do we know we're imagining the same extra scenes? Well, I have to pop off now. I need to trim my probic hair. All the best, Reverend Captain Holoporo, deceased. <laughs> oh, the image. Oh, no. Oh, my God. You don't have to say things like, oh, the image. Now you've put it in my mind. I just read the words and forgot about it. Now you're making me think about it. Sorry. Oh, God. <clears throat> Uh, look, guys, the subject of tonight's podcast, which was never intended, but which somebody suggested, I believe it was you, Mark, at the end of last week, yes. as a joke, and I Possibly. took you up on it. <laughs> so what's the subject of tonight's podcast? You might come to regret that. Well, well foreign you locations, might. isn't it? Yeah. Actually, I think that's a really interesting subject for a podcast. Mm. Well, you know, we did the... we'll find out, won't we? Well, yeah. <laughs> but you know, a couple of weeks ago, we did the male companions, right? Mm -hmm. And prior to somebody saying, let's do the male companions, I'd never thought about doing a podcast on that subject. And I thought, and when this, you know, the topic was raised, I thought, that's going to be bloody awful. What are we going to have to say about them? And actually... It turns out it was. <laughs> but actually, no, as it turned out, I think there was quite a bit to say about them. Mm. And when you mentioned foreign locations, it suddenly struck me... I mean, it's quite obvious, the topic, the way you're going to talk about it. But still, it's worth going through it and, you know, seeing what conclusions we come to. Mm -hmm. And as far as I can see, there are basically two prongs of attack on this. One is, do the foreign locations work? Do they add something to the story? Mm. <clears throat> but then the other one is... And it might be a bit of a game of two halves on this. I'm not sure. I've not really thought ahead about it, but we'll get to it when we come to it. The other one is, now, which came first, the story or the location? Ooh. Yeah, good point. And with that in mind, we'll do them chronologically, but City of Death is obviously the first one, right? 
mm-hmm. which uses as its foreign location Lee. Uh, oh, the moon. No, uh, Paris, France. Yes, Paris, France. Gay Paris. Yeah, but here's the really mm-hmm. interesting thing. When City of Death was originally written by David Fisher, <laughs> it was called A Gamble with time. with time. And it was set, if I recall correctly, in Monaco. Yeah. And it was going to be in gambling casinos, right? Mm. And I'm assuming at that point, there wasn't intended to be any foreign location shooting in it. Now, we all know this, the sort of legend that John Nathan Turner was a production unit manager and he came to the producer with a suggestion um, that it would actually save them, I think the figure that most people quote is 20 quid, by going <laughs> to Paris, by going to actually to Paris and filming the location stuff rather than trying to do it in England and disguise it as Paris. He actually mm. found a way to do it cheaply enough that they'd save money by going abroad. Yeah, it was kind of a, a small guerrilla team of um, techs, wasn't it? Just like a, mm. one, one camera and... Uh... <laughs> they didn't spend a huge amount of Not time lot, there. Yeah. And they only took three cast members there, I think, mm. which would be the Doctor, Romana and Duggan. Mm. I seem to remember the, reading that Douglas Adams it, wasn't too chuffed that he didn't get invited out, so he ended up inviting <laughs> himself and getting somewhat sloshed. With the director of Destiny of the Daleks, yeah. which would be Ken Grieve. <laughs> yeah. But here's the interesting question then. John Nathan Turner came up with costings for Paris, mm-hmm. right? And the rewrite of A Gamble with Time by Douglas Adams, which took a few of the elements of the story, but basically rewrote the script itself, from page one, is set in Paris. Now, did John Nathan Turner take a script that was set in Monaco and said, look, guys, you can film this in Paris for 20 quid cheaper than you can in England? And did Douglas Adams then rewrite the story for Paris? Or did Douglas Adams rewrite the story for Paris, still expecting to shoot the whole thing in England? And then John Nathan Turner said, well, actually, guys, why don't we go to Paris? Because I don't think anybody's ever really nailed that, which way round it all happened. Mm, it's a complete... No. And considering which story it is, Mark, it's a complete chicken and egg thing there, isn't it? Oh, that's what you did there. I, I don't know which way around it happened, but I do know it. You right, Lee? Yeah, sorry, it's just uh, hurt, that one. <laughs> I think you actually sounded... Up there. You She's actually sounded... <laughs> sorry, is it JR? I actually sounded... Song. No, that's Fish. Oh, it's close. You actually yeah, sounded Christ like... Was, uh... the... You actually Oof. sounded. <laughs> it's the fourth time you tried to say it. Go on. Uh, what was I saying? You actually sounded <laughs> like the chicken machine. Oh, but it was yeah. so long ago yeah. that you sounded like the chicken machine. It's hardly worth. No. Look, like so three hours. I do know that Douglas Adams and Graham Williams had to knock up this version of the story very quickly, didn't they? But <laughs> Are you back on the subject of chickens and eggs? Well. <laughs> but yeah, they, it was a rushed rewrite. I think wasn't they it? did it in like four days mm. over a weekend from a Friday to a Monday or something. Yeah, it's it's interesting if you look at the if you look at it, what's on screen. Most of the location shooting is them running about in Paris, having a good time, mm. and the actual kind of plot worthy stuff is all studio based. Yeah, so yeah. The, I think you know they they could have gotten a way of doing this in England, couldn't they? Uh, in they studios only, with could. a few 
Yeah, with a bit of CGI behind, not CGI, CSO rather. Well, um, not even that. I don't think they'd have even gone to that. They'd have used a stock establishing shot yeah, of the Eiffel exactly. Tower, and then they'd have <clears throat> maybe shot a couple of bits in back streets. They probably wouldn't have even had any location stuff at all. Well, we've already no, seen maybe. an international spy thriller from Barry Letts with uh, the recently recovered Patrick Troughton story, haven't we? Enemy of the World. Oh, yeah. Where they've used a, a location in England to double up. Indeed. Yeah, exactly. So you could you can get away with it. It could have uh, easily been all studio bound, but like you say, I think maybe the money. I I don't know whether it, I, that might be just a myth. It was probably you know around about the same price. And he, and John Nathan Turner just said, "Why don't you just do it in Paris? Just let's go on a jolly and film it and get some nice shots." So um, you know, on off they went. But plot wise and story wise, um, it needn't have been filmed in Paris. Whether it didn't have story, to be. Whether or not the story needed to be in Paris either, because mm. if it's in Monaco well, beforehand. Well, no, because the thing about it is, when it was in Monaco, it was mm. about gambling. Right. And Monaco's a city famous for its gambling casinos. Mm. When it moved to Paris, it's about art theft. Mm. And Paris is a city famous for its art. Mm. Paris is also a city famous for its romance, which, uh, mm -hmm. you know, given the... I'm not. To, I'm not going to be as crass as to say, well, given what was happening between Tom and Lala, but given the <clears throat> exactly, <laughs> but given the romantic feel to the story, mm. which is largely brought to it by that location filming. I mean, mm. you look at that location filming, and yes, most of it could probably have been easily cut, and it would still be the same story. It's basically just people going in and out of doors, isn't it? But I'm glad yeah. they did it, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's gorgeous. I think these stories, when they do work, it just gives an extra Flavor. level of depth to it. And it feels like, cause certainly after, I'm not bashing it, but after the Pertwee era where it was all very home counties, wasn't it? It was the same thing over uh -huh. and over and over and over again mm -hmm. as far as location. Well, I think, that's a, it... I think that's a good point that we'll come back to on the next story. Mm. Because... It just makes it feel more like a a global thing and you know the these happenings could happen anywhere yeah that's definitely a point i wanted to address with arc of infinity which we'll mm. come to next but a final word on city of death it is a story that is where, wherein the location is absolutely central not just to the feel but to the plot and i i think if you'd have set city of death anywhere else than paris it wouldn't have felt right you know, when you when you sit down to write a story, you take the elements that you've got, and yes, going back to Mark's point about the home counties, you know, alien invasions of the home counties, that's what they had, that's what they did. And those stories, they might all feel much of a muchness, but you watch any single one of them, something like Spearhead from Space, or something like The Claws of Axos, or The Demons, or whatever, and you know, The Demons wouldn't feel right set anywhere other than a small English village. You know, yeah, exactly. Spearhead from yeah. Space wouldn't feel right set anywhere because you write with what you've got. And yeah. so you write, you write a plot that's not just based around the places you can go and film, but that actually incorporates the feel of the places you know you have access to into the plot. Exactly. I mean, when Barry Letts, uh, Barry Letts wrote Demons, didn't he? When he was sitting down doing that. Oh no, who wrote the demons? 
Was it Barry Letts? Yeah, Barry Letts. Yeah, Barry um, Letts and um, Robert Sloman. That, that's right, yeah. Um, you know, immediately in his head, the first thing he's thinking of, probably before he's even written the story, is, okay, a bit of Hammer Horror, uh, English Village, a bit of Wicker Man. Absolutely. And, and off you go. So it's going to be a no-brainer. With uh, with Douglas Adams writing Paris, you know, he I don't know whether he came up with the idea of, oh, uh, art collections, that's a good idea. I can, I can attach that to time. You know, we can make it Leonardo da Vinci's artwork, and Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an enjambe, a, a kind of a tumbling of ideas out of his head on the paper that, that seemed to work, and Paris was the perfect place to set this story. And here's uh, the thing. Hmm. City of Death, if it had been set in Margate, it wouldn't have had... <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't. It's not just that it wouldn't have had the same Margate impact. Margate is a city of death, isn't it? <laughs> oh. it's not. It's not just that it wouldn't have had the same impact. It wouldn't have worked, but it works brilliantly. And one of the reasons why it's held so in such high esteem, apart from the witty script and the terrific acting and the, you know, beautiful idea at its core. And, you know, Dudley Simpson up in his game in terms of the music and some beautiful location filming. Apart from anything else, one of the reasons why it's held in such high esteem is because it's such a story apart from the rest of Doctor Who. It's not an alien invasion of the home counties. No, far from it. They bottled magic with that story. I think we've all Mm. said it before. Mm. But when they... When John Nathan Turner, who was the guy who masterminded the location shoot in City of Death, mm. became producer and decided to uh, try and strike his lightning in the same place for a second time, albeit, you know, another country further along the <laughs> North Sea coast, <laughs> was he successful? Ark of Infinity in Amsterdam. Oh, well, I've got a soft spot for this one, I've got to say. <laughs> Do you know what? I, as a story, we're not here to talk about whether the stories are any good or not. Mm. As a script, I think it's better ri- written than a lot of people give it credit for. But I think there's a huge gaping hole at the heart of it. And by and large, that is because it's John Nathan Turner saying, right, I want to set a story in Amsterdam. And the writer of that story, then getting an instruction from Eric Saywood to go off and include Omega's return or whatever. And the writer of the story, who, let's not forget, was Johnny Byrne, Mm. who wrote The Keeper of Trarkin, who knows Mm. how to write. And, you know, who's also in his spare time was a poet. Now, you'd assume that somebody with poetry in his soul, for want of a better expression, would be the kind of person who sees the stems of the world and how to shake them together <laughs> i don't know quite where that right. but you know what i'm That's saying very poetic jail you know what i'm saying he's the kind of man you might have expected to make a story like that work mm-hmm. and although he writes something into the plot to make amsterdam yeah. appear intrinsic i can't remember exactly what it is but there's something in the plot about something to do with omega's plan needing to take place below sea level right it's to do with water isn't it or something like that yeah so it <laughs> takes but that is that is basically something that's been written into the plot to excuse mm. the fact that they're in amsterdam and not the other way around <laughs> right it's a, it is a total shame isn't it because i mean i've been to amsterdam i don't know if you guys have yeah it's me too a, beautiful place isn't it mark it is it is um and it's oozes and seeps history and Mm. there's so much there that you could place a doctor who story you know in and and have amsterdam as as a major part of the plot in some some way it's a 
it, it felt an utter waste and a little bit kind of thrown in. And basically, mm. the entire story is set at the entrance to a mausoleum in a country, you know, in a town park, and, you know, on a little bit of quayside. You yeah, are getting like a similar sort of run around like you had in City of Death, aren't you, with them just running through the streets rather than yeah. well, this, taking it in as such. It's not, there's nothing there in as far as the locations they use. I don't quite know whether they didn't do their homework properly or whether they didn't get there early enough to to find some decent shooting sites. But I look at it and I well, think, well, that could have been that could have been filmed in Exeter. You know, we've got Keyside. We've got. <laughs> it's the fault of the script, Simon. There's nothing in the script that suggests Dutch history or that suggests anything intrinsic about you know the Netherlands way of life. There's nothing in there that says go and find the historic locations and use them. It's just a story where there's a few lines in the script about we need to be below sea level. Yeah, <laughs> you have got the pipe organ doing uh, Chewitz from Amsterdam, haven't you? Thank God for that. Uh, but again, that's just <laughs> an add-in. It's, <laughs> it's not essential in any way. That's what I'm the, saying. But, but <laughs> I would go back to your point from earlier about alien invasions of home counties mm. and say if there's one thing that can excuse Ark of Infinity... And I think this will be far more pertinent in two stories' time, the, the story we come to in two stories' time. If there's anything that excuses the foreign location shooting in Ark of Infinity, it is that. It means the story is not just another alien yeah. invasion of the home counties. And that's about really all you can say in its favour. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it could have been placed anywhere at all and uh, Simon's right every location I'm thinking of in Ark of Infinity there is uh, an option to have filmed it in Exeter somewhere <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> seriously it really is it really is <laughs> okay let's move along because we've got a lot of stories to get through um, next up is right and I and this is the one occasion where I think John Nathan Turner probably did get it right perhaps more by luck than by design <laughs> It's Planet of Fire. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, the really weird thing about this is, unlike in Amsterdam and unlike in Paris, and unlike in the story that we're going to come to next after this, Lanzarote doubles as both the home and the yeah. away location. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this one's quite unique in the classic series in that it does that. And in a way, that almost spoils it. Because when you get to the alien planet, although they filmed it on a part of Lanzarote that actually yeah. does look like the surface of an alien planet, the location shooting still feels like it was shot in the same place. So it it doesn't it means that when you get to the alien planet, it doesn't feel as far removed from the Earth locations as it would have if no, the alien no. stuff was filmed on Lanzarote and the Earth stuff was filmed at Torquay. <laughs> exactly. I mean, all the other way around. Even I mean, it, the beach scenes and things. I mean, you know, there's plenty of Cornish coast, which is isolated, and that looks looks great. And also some of the east coast of England, um, which could be could have been used quite easily for that. Margate for Perry. <coughs> Margate again. <laughs> See you, death. No, um, and Dave. Only in the winter time. But uh, yeah, uh, but La Lanzarote doubling up as as the alien planet. Well, you just use a quarry again, don't you? So <laughs> again, it doesn't feel like it was necessarily needed. It was a bit frivolous, but in a way, kind of cl clever um, by doing that, I suppose, because the instead of 
filming Perry wandering around some rocks and then being on planet with rocks. They filmed it in the beach, at the beach, swimming around, and then made it, you know, kind of wet and dry. So, so and if we'd filmed, if they'd filmed somewhere cold, we would have got more than we bargained for. Wouldn't we? Well, <laughs> well, yeah. But the as other an eleven-year-old boy watching that, it was Simon. they could have filmed it anywhere, and I wouldn't have really minded. But the alien, oh. pl- <laughs> well, but the alien planet location in Planet of Fire. Oh God, the name of the planet escapes me. Um, uh, what uh. was it? Shite world, I think. Oh, shut Tryon, up. Tryon, is it? Yes, could be. That's um, uh, yeah. It was Turlo's home planet, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. No, it was not Turlo's home planet. It was the prison planet or something yeah. like that. Uh, it's okay. a confusing plot, but but the but, but the point is the the guy Peter Grimwade who writes the story actually writes a story set on an alien world that is both Mediterranean and volcanic. Is it Sarn? In essence. Pardon? Is it Sarn? Yes, Sarn, that's the one. Sarn. But but my point is he writes he writes an alien planet that resembles the locations they're going to go to. Mm-hmm. You know, because so many times in Doctor Who it'll just be, oh, desert planet, quarry, or jungle yeah. planet, you know, local woods or whatever but actually here he writes he writes for a sort of volcanic mediterranean-esque mm. planet mm. and all his characters and the story is built around you know it, it resembles kind of almost not greek or roman but one of those ancient civilizations mesopotamia maybe mm. you know the whole story revolves around a civilization that's a little bit like one of those and so it feels natural so that the alien stuff in Planet of Fire actually feels perfectly melded to the location that they went to. Yeah, I mean, when you, I'm just trying to think of the shots. There are shots of Turlo wandering around in his shorts and the ground. And I, th- I think it's kind of steaming because it's so hot. It's volcanic, isn't it? Mm. So uh, it does. It does lend itself a really good alien planet. I suppose it's one of the best looking alien planets we've had in Doctor Who in a way. Yeah, uh, being such a break from the usual quarries in Sussex, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. hence the name Planet Fire. Simon's pointed out yeah. to me, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, so yeah. It's be- it is better than a quarry, I suppose. But um, whether it's needed for the story, again... No, I sure. think it is. I think that's yeah. the point. I think mm. that by making the story about a civilization that's like that, you have validated your reason for going abroad. I would yeah, say, okay. yeah, I would say yeah. that's successful. I mm. think the only unsuccessful thing is that they chose to film the Earth locations there too, which, as beautiful as they look, means yeah. that you don't get... You don't get the split between the two locations mm-hmm. being quite as significant as it would be, you know, otherwise. Yeah. If they'd have filmed it in, if they'd have filmed the stuff with, you know, the stuff set on Earth at a sort of rainy Torquay, whatever, it would have meant that once you get to San and you get on those Lanzarote rocks, it would have felt all the more alien mm, than it does. Yeah. So next up. Uh, and this one's a funny one because I think I'll perhaps surprise you with this one. Next up is the two doctors. Yeah. Well, and where's that set, Mark? In Seville, is it? Yes. And now, is there any reason whatsoever for Seville to be in the two doctors? Well, no. not really, no. <laughs> None at Certainly all. Certainly not, not pertinent to the plot, really, is it? No. Mm, no, not in more, any way whatsoever. There's more runaround, isn't it? I suppose they've. I mean, it's interesting they've incorporated 
the Andrigam and Patrick Tra- well, Troughton eating food in a city of oh, there's a city full of food. Actually, Spanish food, no offence, uh, isn't kind of regarded as that kind of. You know, yes, but you know there's I mean? a reason for that, Lee. Is there? It's because it was originally set in New Orleans. Ah, that's it. Uh, and um, at yeah. the last minute, they lost that location as it proved yeah. too expensive and relocated elsewhere. Exactly. And I, can imagine an, I can imagine an Andrew Gum eating gumbo, definitely. Mm. Well, but, that was the whole point. That was not, what not it was going to be. Fish, yeah. No, so then when it moves to Seville, <clears throat> you know, I think the move to Seville is less unsuccessful than it could have been. Because well, for starters, no, Colin uh, ditches the coat, so that's always good. Yeah, but I mean, apart from that, it's well, okay. Uh, running with that theme, you move from New Orleans to Seville, and you've lost the reason for having the Androgums in there in the first place. But you've still got hot, sunny location that looks, you know, entirely different from your alien invasion of the home counties kind of mm. a thing. And I think and. To my mind, you know, this is just a matter of personal taste here because I can't justify this in any way, shape or form. But to my mind, I think the two doctors still works really well. Yeah, despite... Yeah, I don't know why. working, yeah. Yeah, it's no logic behind it, but but to me, it, they just pulled it off. I really like the, um, the Doña Arana's um, house and the surrounding grounds. I think that whole area just gives it a real ambience and it, it really works mm. particularly the chase scenes and stuff later yeah i, I think mean, there's... It, it certainly looks nice that's you know any, i think any location filming or any foreign location filming in dot two at all always looks a bit better a bit different but i don't know whether it's you know adheres to the plot whether it actually needs to be there whether whether they needed to go abroad to to film this story that again well, could have been could have been filmed in Margate. <laughs> They didn't, but I think my point is that Robert Holmes' script, and we all know that Robert Holmes likes to write ripe dialogue. I just think there's something about... And this is... The point with The Two Doctors is it's almost Robert Holmes unbound. Because Robert Holmes had made such a, such a success of The Caves of Androzani, they said to him, OK, we want you to write a story for next year and we want it to incorporate... These two elements, the return of the Sontarans and return of Patrick Troughton. But apart from that, you go off and do what you like. So the two Doctors, it's almost like Robert Holmes unbound for six episodes. It's just a little bit like Robert Holmes having an absolute party with his typewriter. And he writes some of the richest and, you know, ripest dialogue, you know, that Robert Holmes can write. And I just think that that dialogue coming out of the mouths of actors in a location like Seville just suits it. Not the story, not the plot, but the dialogue itself. I think it suits it better than it would if it had been just another rainy English countryside studio story. I know Colin's time on the show gets quite a lot of stick, but I think he really shows what he can do in this. There are issues with the whole... Everyone mentions about him where he knocks off shock eye and is that a doctorish thing to do? But I, I think well, it, it really now. shows off what he could do as the doctor. It is now. <laughs> well, yeah. 
One thing it's a shame that they didn't go to New Orleans and go to America is it it almost takes Perry back to our home turf, which which could have been <laughs> yeah. almost which is Margate. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, that was the last time in the classic series because obviously after that they were on severely reduced budgets and they were never going to manage to get abroad, even with John Nathan Turner's accounting. So then the new series comes back, and there are kind of we, two things. We're discounting the, the movie, are we? Sorry. We well, dis- yeah, yeah, because that wasn't a case of them going abroad to film. That's where they were, so that's where they filmed it. Okay. This is this is foreign location shooting. That's only foreign to England, but actually, that was a production that was based in America. Mm. I mean, we can talk about it if you want, but it doesn't seem to me relevant. I mean, unless you want to. Quite happy to if you want. Should we talk about this one? I mean, it's very, very filmed in Vancouver, set in mm. San Francisco. <laughs> the script incorporates a few of the elements that would make it feel right for San Francisco. For instance, mm. the motorbike chase. You know, San Francisco is famous for having mm. car chases in movies because of the interesting geography of the streets, which makes it a lot more fun for the cameramen to get interesting angles and to make yeah. dynamic car chases. So he writes one of those in. This stuff about the clock could have been set anywhere and would probably have been better set in London, to be perfectly frank, given that London's the home of GMT. So that's an element where the TV movie doesn't quite work. And the fact that it's set in Vancouver means that you write this nice sort of motorbike and ambulance chase in and then you have to film it on a load of flat streets so you kind of lose the thing that you kind of wrote (laughs) that thing for in in the first place but the fact that it's set in america also means you've got this gangland shooting at the start which would have felt more suited to either los angeles or maybe new york so Mm -hmm. again it feels like an american production where they've taken lots of things from american productions including the sort of x filesy stuff that was yeah filmed in vancouver wasn't it x files yeah. vancouver mm-hmm. yeah it was so the x filesy stuff in the tv movie is the stuff that feels most natural to it i don't know about american and canadian uh, viewers of x files and doctor who but i i could tell the difference of it being in canada um, and I don't, I can't put my finger yeah. on it. And I've been to Canada uh, since that was on, to Vancouver, in fact. Um, and I looked around some of the locations and I thought, yeah, this this feels like Canada. It does feel different to America. So it's interesting they're trying to double up and, and kind of hide it when it's actually, I don't think you can hide it. It's very odd. Also in Vancouver, just, just a quick thing to throw in. Uh, when we were in a hotel, there was this uh, leaflet and it was all about movies. They film a lot of movies in Vancouver. So they had this kind of street map of things being filmed and Doctor Who was on there. You know, it actually said Doctor Who, you know, 1996, filmed. And it was in amongst all these massive other films, uh, hundreds of them actually, but there it was sitting there and you could go and visit one or two of the locations. Uh, including Chinatown, which I went to go and have a look at as well. But there wasn't a big fish there getting his head cut off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else on the TV movie? No. I think you summed it up pretty well, to be honest. No, no. I think we needed to give it a nod, and we've given it more than a shake. Yeah, chin wag. That's fair enough. I probably should have put it on the list. I was just thinking of ones where you've gone abroad to film 
Yeah, it's just it's just interesting to talk about whether the flavour of the the story is affected by the by the location. Obviously, as you say, it's so integral to that story anyway. That um, mm. well, absolutely, it feels different because it's been produced on a different continent. It could never not feel different. No, really. But that, but like I say, that was intrinsic to the production. It's not something that they, because the stories I'm considering here are the ones where they've gone in search of something different as opposed to that something different just being a basic component of what they're actually doing in the first place if you see the distinction i make which now does bring us to the new series and well the thing about the new series is they got more money to play with which in a way makes it easier for them to go abroad because they don't have to worry as much as john nathan turner did about making the sums add up far easier when you've got a series of 13 or 14 episodes to you know put just a little bit of extra budget aside to go to somewhere like you know Rome or Dubai but I've not used a very good example there have I Dubai that wasn't in the <laughs> series at all but you know what I mean it took them four years to have the first proper location shoot but the other interesting thing about the new series is not so much that they were able to do it more easily, but that they were able to think about it more thoroughly before they did it. When they did the foreign location shoots in the old series, it was almost a case of, can we afford to go abroad this year? Oh, we can. Oh, we better write something in to excuse it. When you come to the new series, they think a lot more thoroughly about every element of the stories and whether people like those stories or not you cannot deny that there's a lot of thought gone into well for for one example the sort of high concept feel of them you know it's often been said you know yeah. what's this story about oh it's about x and y and in the classic series stories were often just stories whereas in the new series the stories are often sold on the x and the y um, so when it comes to Daleks in Manhattan, you know, the X and the Y is there in the title. It's about Daleks in Manhattan. And that story pretty much writes itself once you get to that. You know, once you give those two elements, that story is, well, we could all imagine what it was going to be. And I don't think it was a million miles away from what anybody might have imagined. <clears throat> no. But I mean... Daleks in Manhattan only has plate shots in New York. Yeah, I mean, they're beautiful plate shots, but mm. I don't think it detracts from... I know it's not heralded as a great story, but I don't think it detracts from trying to make it a realistic portrayal of New York. I think it works on that level. Well, it's yeah, that's bad. what I was... I mean, you've, you... Go on. Yeah, you, you, you've clever, you, you know, it's cleverly been written that you've got things like sewers and tunnels, mm. um, and you've got a theatre, and you've got the inside of the Empire State Building, um, and then a village, which doesn't have to be within New York City. Uh, so that's all very clever writing. To you know, I'm, I'm just thinking, at the time, somebody gave it to the, the writer and said, you know, we want Daleks in America. Can you do something? And that already 
she's thinking, uh, you know, when I write this, I've got to make sure I don't put it in the high streets of New York because that's going to cause an absolute mayhem. We're not going to be able to do it. But how much would we want to have seen that? I mean, King Kong crashing through, we get to see that. But it would, it would have been great to see the Daleks crashing through gangster-ridden New York City. Um, but we, we, we wouldn't be able to get that. We get the play shots, which are pretty good. But let's, let's not forget it's a period piece. So, I mean, even if you were to film... In Manhattan, as it is now, you're going to have to do a heck of a lot of post-production. So yeah. you're going to kind of have to weigh that up, aren't you? Monetarily, you probably it's probably cheaper to just get the plate shots. And but this is this is my this was my point about City of Death earlier. Strangely enough, that you know the shots of them running around in Paris are absolutely gorgeous, and I wouldn't change them for the world. Um, and they're holding hands and they're running about, and it is in Paris, and we get to see them on the Eiffel Tower and all that sort of thing. But um, in you know Daleks of Manhattan. Well, they did what I would imagine uh, they would have done in the 70s if they hadn't have gone to Paris, which is basically, like you say, a, a standard stock shot of the Eiffel Tower and lots of internal studio-based stuff. Um, and that's and, what they did. <clears throat> and the funny thing is, that makes it work. Because Daleks in Manhattan works every bit. I mean, whether you like the story or not, and most people don't seem to, mm. that element of oh. it works every bit as well as the Paris element in City of Death. Yeah. yeah. The Manhattan yeah, stuff in Daleks in Manhattan is absolutely intrinsic to it. With mm. the building of the Empire State Building, together with mm. the theatre, and you know, New York is the home of Broadway, it's the home of theatre in America. Unless I'm wrong, I don't live there, but that that's always been my assumption. But you know what I mean? <clears throat> Daleks in Manhattan takes 1920s New York and puts it on the screen in spite of the fact that none of the actors went there, in such a way as that it all feels absolutely natural. I think it's better than most people uh, give it credit for. <laughs> I, I quite liked it, actually. But, you know, yeah, you've got to think. You have to think. This was filmed in Wales. It was filmed in Cardiff, probably on a rainy day. <laughs> you know, and they managed to show the world that uh, we could we could do a story in America without actually sending everybody over there to do it so we got away with it i think i think this the story got away with it as well just about now the next one and this is where it starts getting very interesting maybe or maybe less interesting and more successful but the next one it i think it had already been a joke if i'm not mistaken in a couple of or one at least david tennant stories the expression volcano day right mm-hmm and so, you, once you write that joke, once you put the line Volcano Day into a story, something's going to ping in the back of your head, isn't it? It's going to make you say, hang on, why don't we do Volcano Day? Mm. And when they found out they could afford to go to, now I'm going to have to try and pronounce this correctly, when they found out <laughs> that they could afford to go to Chine Cheetah, He got it right. Very good. Hey! <laughs> and... And film on the locations where the series Rome had been yeah. made for a cheap enough price that they could afford to go over and not just do it, but do enough of it to make it convincing on screen. And so they write a story. But rather than... <clears throat> because this is what they could so easily have done. They could just so easily have written some fairly generic ancient Rome story, right? Mm-hmm. I mean... We'd already had the Romans, so uh, in the back of their minds, it's oh, we can't. <laughs> so you okay there? That sounds like you're falling <laughs> yeah, off the cliff. Sorry, <laughs> but you know what I mean. In the back of their minds, it's like oh, we can't go back to Rome because we've already done Rome. 
but my God, that was 45 years ago. There's no reason not to go back. But because they had this Volcano Day idea, and Russell T. Davis has obviously said, OK, let's take Volcano Day and run with it, they said it in Pompeii. I, I mean, mm. again, this is the new series working in the way that it does really well with those high-concept elements. The, the, the titles, The Fires of Pompeii, They've got rock creatures that live underground and cause, or or not cause, as the case may be, <laughs> a volcano. But do you know what I mean? All the elements write themselves. It's one of those stories, again, it's like City of Death. And like Daleks in Manhattan, and unlike all the other stories that we've talked about, really, in that all the elements sit absolutely perfectly with one another. One another. You can't imagine them having written uh, what are the creatures in it called the pyroviliens pyroviles mm. pyroviles you can't imagine them writing a story for the pyroviles anywhere else and you can't imagine them writing that story without the pyroviles everything no, sits a, together perfectly it does it's intrinsic isn't it they're both they're both completely and utterly linked um and the interesting great thing about this is that they have like you say got this location uh, it, it almost makes you think that um, Russell T. Davis listened to um, the Big Finish um, story, which I can't remember the name of now, with Melanie Bush in it, which is almost the same thing with the Pompeii um, exploding and everything, Volcano Day. And then thinking, well, actually, that fit, that that location, Rome, they've just done something called Rome, and it looks really good. And actually, the Roman mysteries are getting filmed there as well, the little kids' TV show. We should be having a chunk of this. Um, you know, and that's probably where it came from it's like we, the location was in his head before even writing the the story um and it works so well it's so lovely it's it is like a mini film you can imagine um, for a director being given that set to play with it's like mm, a kid having you know, oh, the best lego set ever absolutely and he made really good use of it you know it's every they film it as much as they possibly can um in that kind of you know, the, when you get into the side of the volcano and stuff, of course, that's all completely different CGI mm. stuff. But yeah, no, he made use of the, the location really, really well, I thought. Yeah, it's good. And actually, funnily enough, a lot of the time you can't, because there is stuff that is filmed outdoors in Cardiff as well, or just outside Cardiff too. Mm. And you can't tell when they're on a location in mm. Chinechita, when they're on a set in Cardiff, or when they're on a location just outside Cardiff. They've made a brilliant job of it. No, can't tell at all. The next one, I tell you what, should we? We should have taken a break to have another email. Should we take another break to yeah, have an yeah. email now? Yeah, yeah because I think the next one is going to be an interesting one. At least I think mm. it is. Richard Hogarth. Uh, Richard. He says, I've been watching a lot of time travel films of late. Time Traveller's Wife, About Time, and Looper, to name just a few. But when I'm watching these, I've noticed how they don't really explain the rules of time travel. For example, with Looper, they say, if we explain it, your head will hurt. Now, I get that they don't want to spend precious screen time with mass exposition, but with Time Traveller's Wife, they don't even give you a reason. And watching Blink the other night on telly for the first time in ages, all we get is wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Are we complacent when we watch time travel in media? And is it necessary for us to have explanations? For me, I think it is important to at least give us some kind of an explanation so we feel for the characters and the journey they are all going on. 
would love to hear what you guys think. I think I think writers are pretty scared at dealing with time travel because there's nobody really knows what it is and um, whether it's achievable or possible and there are so many scientific um you know eggheads arguing the toss about whether it can work or not and it you can break up problems and, for future stories as well doesn't it yeah i mean if you especially like a series um if you yeah. want to do a series of films then it gets really complex i mean it'd be great if somebody did set some rules and guidelines within their universe and said right this is how time travel works and within that structure or within that kind of framework we're going to hang some stories on it and that's that's what you've got to just take on board um you know maybe a theory that's hanging out there that they want to just take and use so i kind of agree but i, I do think writers are a bit scared of it and it's quite it's such a complex subject when you look at Stephen Moffat's stuff, you know, and Doctor Who universe. We had RTD's no fixed even points in time, didn't you? Yeah. And they just seem like a bit of a fudge, really. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. agree you know with I mean? that point. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't have fixed points and non-fixed points. Your no. points are either fixed or they're fluid. You know, you can't have it both ways. Mm. That's like having your cake and eating it. I would well, say that I think most people who write a story that involves time travel will create their own rules and like you say there are no rules because you know it's not possible so you can't know what would happen so there are no rules so i would say that i think most writers who are writing it probably sit down and work out their own rules in their head mm. but then you have to ask is there a reason why they don't want to put those rules up on the screen and perhaps the reason for that is and i th think you've kind of touched on this because the rules are so difficult mm. because it is something that can't happen if you actually say what the rules are then people can only come back and criticize you for breaking your own rules you just get tied up in knots trying to well yeah and if you don't actually put the rule lay the rules out lay down the law then if you do make a mistake if you do trip yourself up mm. and you know Stephen Moffat a lot of people criticise him for tripping himself up like this, and he does from time to time trip himself up. It's like painting up. yourself into a corner, isn't it? Mm. Mm. But if you've not laid out the law, then it's less easy to make that criticism because you can't always be 100% sure if it is a mistake or if he's done it deliberately. And it's ironic that 50 years of a time-travelling um, series, uh, you know, that's, that's still on now, it still hasn't really explained its... its time travelling framework that we're all supposed to believe in whilst watching the programme. <laughs> That's probably it's, why it's lasted 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's, well, I, yeah. I, do you know what? I think they that is changed the rules. You've not the nail on the head there. There is a film, just quickly, uh, called Primer, which I would recommend people to watch if you're into time travel films. it's um, It doesn't have any special effects. It's quite a low-budget film, and it's about a bunch of guys who actually make uh, this time travel thing, and they end up having to put themselves in the storage container until um, you know the time has passed because they push themselves into the future a little bit um, so they don't meet themselves and it all gets very messy and it's it's very clever and it's very head exploding stuff really because <laughs> you don't know who you're looking at there's only, only tiny clues like somebody's buttons undone at the top and so it, yeah it, it's a great great film um, and it has its own framework which you have to get your head around <laughs> but primer um, give it a go and next week on the Silver Screen podcast, we'll be talking about <laughs> westerns. But back Sweet. here in this week on the Blue Box podcast, oh, <laughs> we're talking about westerns. 
Actually, the greatest time travel movie of all time is Nicholas Meyer's Time After Time. Oh, that's a great film. Ah, oh, it's a wonderful really film. Really good. But when, and if is you that like, the Christopher Reeve one? Uh, no, 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 that's no. that's somewhere in time. Oh, yeah. Is it H.G. Wells one? Yes, H.G. Wells and yes. Jack the Ripper. H.G. Wells and Jack the Ripper ah, in modern day yeah, San yeah. Francisco. Yeah, Absolutely brilliant. wonderful. But our next story <laughs> up for consideration <clears throat> is set in, well, not set in Dubai. It's filmed in Dubai and it is Planet of the Dead. And I think I'm going to surprise people with this because, mm. well, uh, you're going to say it people, worked. Yeah, I think it works brilliantly. Most people will say, oh, they could have just filmed that in Essex or whatever, or, you know, wherever. And most people will say, well, it's a crap story, so why did they bother going all that way to make a crap story? Of course it doesn't work. <laughs> well, the fact is you might have liked the story, and it's not an especially good story, because essentially it's a remake of... It's essentially a remake of Midnight that does it less well. But one thing I would say it does really well is the location. I think it I think that location suits that plot perfectly and I think that plot makes use of that location perfectly. I think it is I think that element of it is done brilliantly. I mean it's well, supposed go, to be set on a desert world, so they go and film it in the desert. Mm-hmm. How much more perfect could that be? I'm I didn't really feel to, like you got um, a sense of the scale of it though. I think you did. I think mm. they made a very good use of the scale of it. Mm. I think you're thinking you didn't get a good example of the scale of it because you didn't like the story very much and making the same no, mistake. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's well, true. Maybe. <laughs> um, going back to Planet of Fire, they do get that contrast in which they, they missed a trick on Planet of Fire. They didn't need to feed the uh, film the beginning yeah. of the episode on Lan- uh, Lanzarote um, because, yeah, you've got that contrast between Cardiff or supposedly London. Mm. and the desert planet so in that respect i think it works really well when it fir- when the bus first arrives you kind of think is it kind of a uh the central idea to the whole episode is i want to see a double-decker bus stuck in the middle of a desert and it's a bit like the close encounters thing of the ship in the desert isn't yes. it it's that mm. same thing yes and it's also yes. based on exactly. um gareth roberts novel isn't it it and is I forget which one it is, is i it... can't remember what it's called it's the one it's with the chelonians zamper is it no, no, it's the one before that. It's his first one. Higher okay. Science, hasn't it? Higher Science, that's the one. A really good book. I love that story and the way it was written. I absolutely adored it. And I thought, I really want to see this on TV. Um, and there it is. <laughs> kind of half but on he TV. Forget, but he forgot. In it Planet of the Dead, he forgets to bring the characters along, doesn't he? He, he does, I think. Yeah, that's the problem. It's and uh, just the, ch- the to doctor ch- and one yeah. not very likeable girl. And everybody else is instantly forgettable. Exactly. I think two things. Um, coming back to your point, Mark, about trying to give it some scope in the mm. cinematography, they could have um, actually, um, uh, you know, uh, got got somebody in a cheap little plane and just filmed. Yeah. <laughs> filmed it from the top like a Peter Jackson sweepover. You know. Yeah. That would have made it. Um, you're right. That would have made a difference. That'd have made uh, an amazing little shot. I think. But actually, the tritivores are flies, so maybe it could have been a fly's eye view as well. You know, mm. there, there are things they seem to miss, but maybe it was just. Well, also, you've got to remember that the main enemy in that one that turns up at the end are airborne. Yeah, that's true. And you do get some nice airborne um, shots, and you do yeah, get lots yeah, of do. nice long shots of the bus in the desert. I think you really do get a sense of scale with that one. Yeah. I think the two, I think the twin troubles with that are he makes it a character piece, but forgets to add any characters. Yeah. You know, it's. 
60 minutes of a bus in a desert. It to me, it been, felt a bit like when you saw the long shots. Been, it should have been ice cold in Alex with aliens. Oh, yeah, that'd be, yeah, exactly. Yes, and it would be great. Yeah, now that you've let me finish my sentence, Mark, you can have yours. <laughs> no, it just felt like when you saw those long shots of the bus in the desert, it just felt like somebody had photoshopped it in. It didn't really feel... <laughs> I, I don't know. I just no. It's really I'm not there, saying it because it's, it's not the greatest story. It just felt. I don't yeah, know, but that's what like you've brought worked. to it, not what it's given you, because it has given you genuine shots of a bus in a desert. Yeah, I know. I know. I know it's my problem, but um, <laughs> but I think yeah. you know you're, you're right. If you'd have taken those characters out of the bus and they were all walking across the desert for survival to try and get to somewhere, that that would have made a more interesting watch as well. You know, people who are weak, maybe getting hungry and need food and stuff, and then suddenly they come across the tribe to force, and it's kind of it would be, would have been a different beast, I think. Um, it could have been a lot more interesting yeah, a story. The Chelonians, but... chuck the chuck the Chelonians in there, walking turtles, it'd be brilliant. Wow. <laughs> but for the purposes of our podcast, I would say Planet of the Dead is one of the most successful ones on our list. Yeah. Yeah. Now. And one of the less successful ones on our list, I think, in spite of the fact that it looks lovely and that on the surface of it, it appears successful. But one of the less successful ones on our list is The Vampires of Venice. Now, I don't quite know why it doesn't work. Admittedly, it's filmed in a place called Trogir in, is it the Ukraine or somewhere like that? It's Croatia. Croatia, sorry, rather. Filmed in Croatia rather than in you know, ancient Venice, but you don't have the time travel machine to go to ancient Venice, so that's fair enough. But, you know, in spite of the fact that water is one of the heavy elements in the story, and in spite of the fact that it's kind of vampires, so setting it, you know, somewhere several hundred years ago kind of gives it almost that feel of a one of these medieval vampire stories... It just doesn't all seem to add together to me. Well, that that is the ah, problem. But JR, with the story, isn't that just what story, you're bringing to it? <laughs> well, I'm not sure it does. I think perhaps the fact that it's okay. I'll go further into it now, Mark. I was going to let you all have a turn first, but if as soon as you brought it back to me, go on. Well, that's <laughs> what. Okay, okay, so why do I think it doesn't work? Here it is. It's about vampires. But it's not about vampires, it's about fish. It's about the water, the fish, but it's not about the water because the fish are on dry land, oh, and they're vampires. It's set in Venice, which is a place where water is everywhere, but most of it's set in courtyards. It's set in ancient Venice, so you would feel that you would need a feel of the Italian about it. And yeah, it's just a medieval vampire story. It could essentially have been set in medieval England or medieval Transylvania. It's got lots of elements that on paper seem like they work, but that actually when you go down the list, nothing on that list is quite essential. So it just feels like a bunch of inessential elements jostling together, trying to look for the essentiality of the story, which doesn't exist. I like Vampires of Venice. Mm. <laughs> I think it's a very witty story and I enjoy watching it. But for the purposes of our podcast, for a foreign location shoot, I don't think it works for those reasons. Will that do you, Mark? That sounds pretty good to me. Good good defence. What yeah. I would say is that I think they filmed 
um, Vincent and the Doctor in the same area, and I think that works a lot better. It does. We'll come to that in a second. I mean, can anybody defend Vampires of Venice and say, yes, it does work? I, I don't think I can. I think I'm in agreement with you. I thought you got a flavour of Venice. I've been to Venice myself, so... Yeah, yeah but I'm but... not talking about whether you get a flavour of Venice, but whether that's essential to the story. Hmm. If you if you took the same, you know, same character, same storyline, and you put it in Cardiff Castle, and, it, you know, they, they all lived in the moat, the brothers and sisters, the, you know, the Saturn, Saturnines creatures, they all lived in the moat. You could easily I think that would have made more sense. It would have made me. more sense because it would be more kind of territorial, in fact. And it gives them more of a reason for yeah. not being in the moat, but being on dry land for 90% of the story. Exactly. Um, so, I, I don't know, it just seems a bit strange again, doesn't it? It's like what came first, the location or the story, or the promise of a location and the story. I mean, yeah. No, if you're going to use water, use a lot of it. You know, have them... Have people on on the what are those things the gondolas getting pulled under that sort of thing? Mm. I mean, I recently me, watched, I recently watched yeah. a, a fantastic film called Shark in Venice. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, one of the worst films I've ever seen. Are we back on the silver screen podcast? <laughs> yeah. But the point and was, look, it was a shark in Venice in the water, and it needed you know it had to have that location. Whereas Vampires of Venice mm. doesn't need that location. It feels like the Ark of Infinity of the new series, if you ask me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can anybody really argue with that? No. No, it's nah, nah. on to a loser with, involving vampires anyway with me, so. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't, that's, well, that's my, per- the least of my problems with it, thing. really. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. But I, I think that's the least of his problems, really. I think it's, you know, and this is really weird misstep for Toby Whithouse, because normally, and we'll come to another one of his in a minute, Normally, he does a really good job with what he's got. And in that one instance, he seems, for want of a better expression, all at sea. Or all at... (laughs) Or at... All at canal. (laughs) But then it's it's one of those stereotypical RTD moments where he just said, I want vampires in Venice. And that was his... Well, this is the point. Mm. It's not RTD anymore. It's Stephen Moffat. And this is... This is series five. Oh yeah, cool. This sorry, is... sorry, I'm not. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah but it's well, the same thing. This is the point I've made time after time about series five. When Stephen Moffat says, "Okay, let's do the RTD thing," it doesn't quite work. When Ros- you know, when Stephen Moffat says, "Okay, let's do the Stephen Moffat thing," it does. And Vincent and the Doctor, which comes up next, is a really strange example of a hybrid that does work. Instead of saying to Richard Curtis. Okay, let's do the Russell T. Davis thing. Uh, Stephen Moffat said to Richard Curtis, Okay, let's do the Richard Curtis thing. Mm. And Richard Curtis has written a Richard Curtis story. And it's Vincent and the Doctor. And it does work. And do you know why it works? Because it doesn't really try to be Doctor Who. What it what it's done, you know, it's a really good script. The script came first. And then, you know, they must have been thinking, oh, we, we've got to film this as well. But really, it was about it was about the personal touch. You know, it was about Vincent and the Doctor. It was a really, uh, you know, it's a small ensemble piece, wasn't it? It was only a few well, people in it. done. And the surroundings weren't as important. They didn't need to be. But actually, I think part of it, the church parts are filmed in Wales anyway. But, um, you know, and the street parts are filmed, like you say, back in that... Um, 
Trogger. Yeah. yeah, and that it does work. It works because it's not intrusive. It's not forcing it upon you. It's just there. And, and it's it much more subtle. And yeah, but what what's happened is rather than try and write an element story like Ross T Davis did, or rather than try and write a story with a sort of what's the the thing about the Stephen Moffat stories is people kind of think they're all timey wimey. They're not. Most of them have got no timey wimey in them at all. But what the Stephen Moffat stories do, they're kind of hybrid stories. Unlike the Russell T. Davis ones where you take a bunch of elements and put them together to make a story, with the Stephen Moffat ones, what you do is take a bunch of themes and put them together to make a story. For instance, just completely random example, because of the black spot, pirate ship on the sea and transpires alien medical station in an alternate universe and it's about the two universes bringing together it's not about the elements it's about the themes coming together with Stephen Moffat and the reason the vampires of Venice perhaps doesn't work is because it's somebody trying to write a Stephen Moffat story in a Russell T Davis template the reason I think series five doesn't work is because there's a lot of that going on the reason of Vincent and the Doctor works is because Richard Curtis and, you know, I don't know how much of it Richard Curtis ended up finally writing because Stephen Moffat ended up writing the script at the end of it all. I think he's finally admitted this now, although may not have named the author, but he said uh, just recently that there are some writers that you think, great writer, why shouldn't they be able to write Doctor Who? But they're not trained to do it, and so they don't necessarily... And so I think Stephen Moffat ended up writing the final draft of Vincent and the Doctor... But nevertheless, it comes from the core of a Richard Curtis story, and Richard Curtis doesn't try to do the elements thing, and he doesn't try to do the themes thing. He just writes a story that stands apart from the rest of Doctor Who. And the only way in which it doesn't work is when the Doctor Who elements are grafted onto it, mm. although he even makes a good fist of that, the giant chicken. I think so, where it, Sorry, I think where it really works is it's a story all about emotion and... The fact that it really sells to you that you are in Vincent's timeline and you are in that location makes it all the more emotional when you go to the gallery at the end to see the legacy that he's left behind. Mm. Now, uh, next is where Stephen Moffat starts getting it really right, I think, and that is... The United States, the Impossible Astronaut. Mm -hmm. And there's really not very much of the United States on screen in the Impossible Astronaut, but they do a really good job with the, you know, small amount of it they do have. And America is intrinsic to the story. And it, it's Stephen Moffat doing a Stephen Moffat story and adapting in the location is almost a perfect story for Stephen Moffat because, like I say, he doesn't do elements like Russell T. Davis did. And if you think about it in a way like everybody has done before, where they've... Most Doctor Who plots from prior to Stephen Moffat have all been fairly straightforward in terms of both themes and in terms of the plot themselves. But because Stephen Moffat... And I think when we come to the last email, this is quite a pertinent point... It's both the themes and the plots in Stephen Moffat that aren't so straightforward. And I think when you bring in a foreign country, which is 
And whatever way you look at it, most Doctor Who is filmed in Britain. So when you do bring in a foreign country, and that's why we're even doing this podcast, it's really noticeable because it is an alien element Mm. that you've introduced into your series, right? Mm -hmm. But I think the way it works really well for Stephen Moffat is because he's blended up his themes and his plots so much already, bringing in another alien element, like a foreign country, just feels like a natural next development. I mean, do any of you, mm. what do any of you think about that? The, yeah, I mean, the, it is, isn't it? It's perfect. I think it, what what struck me is that when we heard it was being filmed in America, I thought, oh, great! I'm looking for, I am looking forward to this. I want to see what he does with it. But I hope they don't just cram in, um, you know, famous sites down our throat just for the hell of it, like. Like Planet of um, Planet of Fire, really. There were these very elongated, long scenes with Turlo stumbling about, and they did it because they had the location wanted to cram as much as possible in. It was Doctor Who trying to show off a bit, whereas this seemed to be really thought out and measured. And the the you know the the snaps that we got and the the bits we had on I think it was on the Hoover Dam, wasn't it? Hoover Dam Bridge, Hoover Dam. Was it, it was and also in Monument the, Valley. Monument it? Valley, yeah, that's right. Mm. Sorry, and and other places. It it made sense. It made absolute sense for it to be there, and it was f- seamlessly grafted between Cardiff <laughs> and America. I mean, we've been to the. Uh, I mean, Simon have been to the bar, all the um, soda bar in uh, in yeah. Cardiff where where it's filmed. You know, in the diner, um, and it does look like an American diner. And, it, and it's, it's seamless. It's so clever. We were just trying to work out how they did it. It's beautifully done. So, yeah, I don't think anything was, was wasted. I don't think any, anything was some put in there for just showing off. It was it was purely for, to help the story, to enhance the story. Well, that's an interesting little thing you've just said there. Nothing was in there for showing off. Wasn't it? But you know what I've... Well... <laughs> Well, well I was just going to apart from the whole thing, of course. I was going <laughs> to... No, I was just going to point out that Stephen Moffat... I've said this many times. Stephen Moffat seems to have this thing where look at something RTD's done and has said, do you know what? You didn't do that quite as well as I can. (laughs) And he's looked at Dreamland, the animated story. Uh, And when Dreamland came out, you know, one of the big advertising hype lines about it was it's a Doctor Who story that's had to be animated because we could never have afforded to do it for real. And Stephen Moffat's turned around and said, you know what, you might not have, I can. (laughs) Yeah, he's showing off, but I don't think there there are extended scenes uh, in the actual, um, you know, episodes. No, there aren't. Yeah. I was thinking about Dreamland, actually, as as I was talking about that, yeah, the Mm. the similarities. Yeah, 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 there are. But also, of course, America's intrinsic to the story. I mean, you could say, oh, they graft somebody like Richard Nixon on because it's set in America. But no, of course, it's about the moon landing. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it, you know, the silence. Like I said before about the fires of Pompeii, you write your monster to mirror your plot. You write your monster to mirror your location. You write your monster to mirror your theme and your feel, your tone. If you get all the elements right, they all feel like they're a natural part of the same theme or tone. And the silence in The Impossible Astronaut and Day of the Moon, they are the alien men in black. Mm. Yeah. And and the whole story, the plot about the sort of memories and stuff like that, 
I mean, it's brilliant. He writes a, he writes, you don't even notice how clever he's being. He writes a monster where the sort of big thing about the monster, even more than what it looks like, is what it does. You forget it's there when you're not looking at it. It's about memory. And then it turns out the entire plot is about the most memorable thing that mankind has ever done. The most memorable image that's ever been captured on camera. Mm. It's brilliant the way he brings all these things together. And you don't even notice it because it's so brilliant. Mm -hmm. and, and America is intrinsic to that. Go ahead, Simon. Sorry. It's all right. Um, I was going to say how ironic it is that RTD did these big uh these big storylines these big climaxes to the series that, that to give some kind of grandeur to the whole thing to the point where the doctor was floating in the air and doing all this um christ-like positioning and all yeah. this sort of thing to create some kind of grandeur stephen moffat opens a series with a with a, an episode like this um and with its second part as well where you've got the grandeur of real of, of a real location and it is mm. absolutely massive and like you say the storyline with the silence the fact that they're affecting america you get this sense that um this whereas, is on the big scale yeah exactly you know in the days of pertwee you had to assume that even though the aliens were invading uh, small, camden yeah exactly, <laughs> that this was all happening elsewhere in the world but you kind of get this grandeur of america and and, and the companions being chased all the way over over america and that this this story has been carrying on for literally months between the episodes, um, you've instantly got this grandeur that's completely believable, and and no one, no one, I don't think anyone's ever questioned that. In the same way as they would question the fact that the Doctor is supposed to be some kind of being who's tapped into the psyches of everyone on the planet. It's um, yeah. So the next thing is after the Impossible Astronaut proves successful, there's not another one that series. But in Series 7A, the sort of big movie semi-series that they do in 2012 to lead up to the end of the Bonds, they do it twice, don't they? And, well, the first one is A Town Called Mercy and the second one is The Angels Take Manhattan. And in a way, I think you've got to consider these two together because of how close they are together and because the idea that they should want to be big movie Doctor Who episodes and that they've deliberately done them this way because, you know, they could so easily have, if they had enough money for two location shoots, they could easily have put one of those episodes in the second half, but they choose not to. And I, I, again, they're both really, really successful, but at the same time, I'm not quite sure they're as successful. I, don't, I, I think... I don't, yeah, go on. Well, A Town Called Mercy, Toby Whithouse, getting right all the things he got wrong in Vampires of Venice. But I think the thing about it is, it, it all works brilliantly. It all works perfectly. All the elements, themes, tones, like I was saying about the Impossible Astronaut, they're all together. They're all right in that story. But I, I sometimes get the feeling, thinking about that, that they're all right almost for the sake of it. It's almost like they said, do you know what we could do? We could go to Spain and do a Western. Somebody sit down and write a Western. And yes, he's written the perfect Western, 
but it almost feels like he wrote the perfect western for the sake of it rather than because it mm. was in their hearts to write a western mm. and it goes back to mm. that chicken and egg thing which came first the location or the story mm. with something like the impossible astronaut it almost feels like he sat down and wrote the story and then begged his executive producers can we go to america to film this do you know what i mean mm. it feels to me like a story he needed to get out and probably actually before he wrote a line of the script, he asked, can we afford it? And they said, yes. And he said, okay, I'll sit down and write it. But it felt like a story he needed to get out. Whereas A Town Called Mercy, which is brilliantly well written and well conceived and well executed. But you, do you know what I mean when I say it does just feel like they did it for the sake of it? Is and that, the angels take Manhattan more so. It's almost too too perfect. <laughs> so it's almost too perfect a kind of serial western. Um, uh, you know, it's done really well. I mean, if it, this was a series in America, if Mercy, say, if it was called Mercy, and it was a series in America, and for some reason, you know, part of Mercy's history happened to have this alien drop in and the Doctor, and then he bugger off again, and Mercy carries on. You could imagine this as a series. It, it fits quite nicely to the kind of ethos of HBO almost, the way that they do stuff. Um, but uh, it. it, it Obviously, they have to film it in a location that's going to reflect uh, it being a Western. It's either that or you go to Cornwall, where they've got uh, there's this great little Western town with the sand and everything. It looks, it looks great, but uh, and you could get away with it. But for some reason, no, you need to really get out there. You need to have the location, because they went outside the town as well and into the, into the rocky outcrops, and it, it kind of all made sense. But And where did they film it, Lee? Uh, Before you go any further, I don't know where they filmed <laughs> Spain, was it? No. Yes, <laughs> um, where they do all the spaghetti western. Uh, I was going to say, yeah, yeah. But um, I was talking to Simon about this the other day, and I was thinking, would it have been, you know, could, if that actual storyline, if you took that storyline, you might have been able to pluck it from the western setting and just plonk it in uh, a middle England village somewhere. It would still work. Well. You could say that, but the central theme of that story is redemption, and that is the central theme of the American Western. Yeah, of course. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it <clears throat> oh, he's done a perfect job on it, Toby yeah, Whitehouse, yeah. don't get me wrong. Done a perfect job on it, but it just, I don't know, if you look at it dispassionately, it just feels like it's lacking in a little bit of soul. Yeah, possibly. It was a grower. I think I remember we watched that, didn't we? And um, I think we were a little oh, bit yeah, kind of non, yeah. we're a bit nonplussed about it, actually. And yeah. then I think the more uh, I've watched it, the more I've loved it. Yeah. Oh, I'm not saying it's not a great story by no, any no, stretch. No, no. I'm saying the fact that it's a Western yeah. in the series there feels like a slightly soulless decision. It feels okay. like a, right, let's chuck a Western in at this juncture in the series <laughs> rather than, you know, if he'd have come up with a Western and said, my God, man, look at the script on this you need to put this into production and then it said oh my god you're right that script's brilliant we need to do this it would have felt like they were doing it for the love do you think if it had been in the previous season you might have thought differently because um, this is the movie season isn't it essentially no because no. do you know that's another one of the things i like about series six is that all of those stories feel like they're there because they needed to be told okay. whereas in series seven occasionally you get the feeling that the stories are there because they needed something to fill that slot mm, right do you know what i mean mm. uh, i think if you're which, looking at the, t the two stories together yeah the manhattan and the, the well i think manhattan Houston. doesn't work for a different reason which is kind of the same reason i'll come back to that in a minute 
But you were saying about we I don't I can't remember you mentioned now about the RTD going for these really big over the top sort of finales, and I get the impression I'm in two minds about Angel Take Manhattan. In one respect, Manhattan totally works if you want to do a film noir. You know, that's, it it just that's, right. that's the place you yeah. would set it. But you get the impression that Stephen Moffat's just sat down and thought. Wow, yeah. What would be the most amazing weeping angel? I know, the Statue of Liberty. And oh, then well, just kind I'd... of gone with that. No, I would take umbrage with that suggestion. <laughs> I would say he wanted to write the film noir and wrote the film noir and said, right, we're in Manhattan. You can't not have. It was def- to me, you know, it is a slight chicken and egg, but to me it is definitely a case of it's set in Manhattan. You've got to use the Statue of Liberty. It's not the other way around. He didn't say, I need the Statue of Liberty. Okay, I've got to set it in Manhattan. You look at that story. That story was always going to be set in Manhattan. Do you get my point, though? It does feel a little bit like one of those RTD finales. But you know why? And this is possibly... Well, hopefully this might help. The reason why... The reason why I think you're thinking that or open to thinking that, the reason why I think people think, oh, they've just chucked the Statue of Liberty in for the sake of it and it really shouldn't be there. The reason people have a problem with that story, it's not because any of those elements don't work. I think those elements all work beautifully. And although that story has to take a couple of leaps into you know, the suspension of disbelief in order to work, I think I'm prepared to make those leaps of the suspension of disbelief if the story's good enough, but at the heart of that story, there is one absolutely killing mistake. And that is that after two and a half years of Amy and Rory, he's left them in a foreign country. Mm. Why? Why has he done that? Why did he make that choice? If you want to tell a story like The Angels and Take Manhattan, don't make it their last story. Whatever you do for their last story, you've got to make it something that mm. feels like a true and right and proper and deserving and fit conclusion for those two characters. Do you, do you think it would have worked if they'd been able to film the PS segment? No, because they those two characters don't need or deserve to be in Manhattan. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That's mm. not where they were supposed to end up. Maybe they're They've ended to... up there. They've ended up there because he fancied telling that story yeah. and it suited, you know, being the last one of that series and the one in which they go because the whole Weeping Angels thing as well is his excuse to get rid of them without really getting rid of them. So it, it all fits together in the end in a nice hat. But you know what I mean? It's a nice hat that doesn't mm-hmm. feel the person it was, des- doesn't fit the person it was designed to wear it. I know. I mean, it's easy for us to sit here and say these things, isn't it? But I'm in agreement. I think I would have liked to have seen, um, you know, I, I thought about this at the time. I thought, why why America and why not Ledworth? <laughs> you know, because it would have been great if they'd have been spun back in time like 200 years ago in Ledworth instead. And uh, yes. you, know, you could have, if, if Stephen had thought about it, he could have ha- introduced something in the graveyard that they happened to come across in almost the first episode back in 2000 and whatever it was, you know, when uh, Amy Pond was first introduced. Well, they um, could have ended up but, at the bottom is, of the duck pond, couldn't they? Yeah, they, could have, they could have done, yeah, the bloody duck pond. What a waste. Um, the other thing is, I was, I was going to ask, do we know how much was actually filmed in America for Angels Take Manhattan? Do you know which parts? Was it just like location shots and the park? Or was there some, I can't remember. 
because a, lot of, a was, lot of it was filmed in Cardiff as well. Yeah, I think it was mainly just the park stuff. I don't think there's right. anything else in there. Yeah, because I think there's the f- a very small segment in Times Square, isn't there? Ah, uh, yes. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Again, uh, that's right at the very start of the story, yeah, pretty much, isn't yeah. it? That's because it's basically, there. it's like the Impossible Astronaut. It's basically just the first few minutes, and occasionally you get a couple of shots elsewhere in the mm. episode just to remind you. But yeah, yeah. I mean, all the buildings. I think the front of the buildings are all in Cardiff. Hmm. hmm. Yeah. But you know, so that we, what well, we, so I don't, uh, so I don't Winter think the angels which managed to confuse lots of Americans. Sorry. Sorry. And Winter Key, which managed to confuse lots of Americans. Why? Because it had Did the it? English spelling Q U A Y. Brilliant. Oh, of course, instead of K E Y. Yeah. <laughs> Dope. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the last one, really. And uh, Town Called Mercy and Angels Take Manhattan, I do think they both work really well as stories. But, I, you know, there's just something in both of those stories, something about where they're placed that doesn't feel quite natural. And so I would say the most successful ones for me are The Impossible Astronaut by A Country Mile in the new series and City of Death in the classic <laughs> series by A Country Mile as well. Mm. I mean, any of you guys beg to differ on that? Um, I, I still think Town Killed Mercy is, um, is up there as well as being you know, relevant. Um, but I know what you mean about what, you know, what you said about it. But no, I th- you know, if you're going to do a Western, you've got to do a Western, you've got to take it abroad, you've got to make it hot, you've got to do it in a place like Spain or America. Um, <laughs> otherwise, it ain't going to work. Uh, <laughs> definitely not, what story definitely we not didn't... Cardiff. <laughs> I mean, Mark, what, what, what do you think was the most successful, perhaps, then, of all the stories we've talked about? And uh, apart from City of Death. I argue with your choices. I think... Fires of Pompeii, I think. Yeah, worked. I was I was going to mention that one too, actually, mm. to be fair. In the new series, sir. Mm. Mm. And Simon, do you have a... Yeah, yeah. I think Impossible Astronaut, I, re- I really do, because it, it absolutely oozes the um, the atmosphere of, of where the story's placed. Everything in that story makes complete sense to be in that location, and that location just gives you everything you want to the eye um and i just think those two episodes work incredibly well in that in that location um it doesn't as you said it doesn't it doesn't feel like the story's been made to fit yeah, at all yeah. the the whole thing is one big working machine um now the only thing we've not mentioned and people will pull us up on this if we don't is asylum of the daleks which, of course, had a tiny bit of location shooting because they happened to be at the location for a town called Mercy and it struck them to go and do it. But it's not really intrinsic to the story and really it's just an adjunct to it, something they added on because they could. Where was this? Was this the snowy bit? The snowy bit at the start of Asylum oh, okay. of the Daleks. Right, it was close yeah. to where they were filming Town Called Mercy, so mm-hmm. they just went off for one morning and filmed those shots while they had a free morning from A Town Called Mercy. Something like that. Was it? Was that fake snow then? <laughs> no, it's real snow. No, it was real. That's the point. They were going to use fake snow oh, back in Cardiff, right. presumably, and they used real snow because they were close enough to some to be able to do it when they were it's filming. It's not essential Temple to Mercy. the story, but I think it does give it an extra level mm. of reality. It's yeah, a, it does. It's lovely. It gives the opening a nice flavour that yeah. might have been slightly more artificial yeah. if they'd done it another way. Definitely yeah. the best part of the whole thing, that snowy thing. 
I don't know if it would have been snow if they hadn't have seen that snow there. And whatever else they might have chosen to do at home might not have worked as well. Mm. Swimming but, pool. But <laughs> mm, who knows? But there you go. We've mentioned it. It's not really relevant, but we've mentioned it. Should we do the last email and get the hell out of here? Sounds like a plan. Okay. Right, the last email is from somebody new. It's from David Kitchen. Hello, David. He says... Hello. <laughs> he says, Dear Blue Box team, I've recently discovered your podcast via the guys at 42 to Doomsday and absolutely love what I've heard so far. I've been are listening... They, uh, are they from Wolverhampton? Yes, they're from oh, Wolverhampton. Cool. He says, I have been listening to some of your back catalogue and it was your summary of the 11th Doctor's era that encouraged me to write. Personally... I really disliked this era and struggled to think of any episode that I'd rank amongst the best of the original 26 seasons of Doctor Who. And this is in contrast to the last two eras, which each contained episodes I loved. Nevertheless, it was fascinating to hear you discuss what you like about this period, and I may have to go back and give a few episodes a second chance on the back of your comments. Rather like in Knock's box. <laughs> By the way, just thought I'd throw that in there. However, it was your comment that you all find even a bad episode of Doctor Who better than anything else on TV at the moment that really struck me, as I realised that for me, this is no longer the case. Mm. There are now many shows that I would rather watch than Doctor Who, and that I think are considerably better written than Doctor Who. Is this just me? Or did the Smith Moffat era mark such a change in the show that very old school fans can no longer keep up with the change in style? And are we finding other shows to follow? Or will the Matt Smith era be seen as an outlier with a more traditional era coming with Peter Capaldi? Or is it all just me and should I just get over myself? Once again, love listening to your discussions and find them engaging even when I don't agree. Regards, David from Melbourne, Australia. I think fair play to him. One thing I would say is that if he's not enjoying it that much, he has gone out and looked for something else to watch yeah. rather than just banging on about how much he hates <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that era. Yeah, like all the rest of us. <laughs> um yeah, that's a good email. Thank you, David. Um, it'd be interesting well, to hear what other shows that he does like, actually, over Doctor Who, because there are some absolutely amazing shows out there at the moment. And, well, uh, you know, in that up. case, as we start each episode with a Knox box, we should end each episode with um, recommendations from David about the other shows he's watching it and call it Dave's Raves. <laughs> Not Kitchen's Bitchin'. <laughs> yeah, Kitchen. <laughs> nice one, Mark. Thank you. Okay. No, I wanted to address, actually, the questions he asked in the middle, uh, just briefly, okay? But he says, he says, well, I'll reread the two questions. Did the Smith Moffat era mark such a change in the show that very old school fans can no longer keep up with the change? Or will the Matt Smith era be seen as an outlier with a more traditional era coming in with Peter Capaldi? And actually, it struck me when I first read those two questions that the answer is probably the same to both of them. Mm -hmm. They probably are the same question. I think Stephen Moffat has deliberately done something really different with the Matt Smith era. I think he will go back to a slightly more traditional Doctor Who with Peter Capaldi, and whoever follows Stephen Moffat will probably write a more traditional Doctor Who. I don't think there's anything wrong with writing Doctor Who that doesn't feel like Doctor Who. Because after all, every time it changes, that's what's happened. But I do think that 
what Stephen Moffat's done with it has felt so different that that's the reason why people don't think it's any good rather than the fact that it's not any good. I think it's fantastic. I just think it's so different from ordinary Doctor Who that people struggle with it. Uh, do you see what I mean there? Because I don't think I've ever phrased that quite like that before. Yes, I think whatever era you look at, even if you don't enjoy it the first time round, I've found this looking at a lot of the classic DVDs, you do get a, a different take on it once you reviewed them perhaps a few years down the line and you might feel differently it's um it's an amorphous thing isn't it doctor who is an amorphous thing it changes all the time we've said this again and again and again and there's nothing wrong with not liking a certain section of it and coming away from it and hopefully coming back to it um we had that period where you know a lot of people did just move away from it in the 80s until the new series and i don't i don't think that will happen again i think there will be periods hopefully it will keep going strong and it'll it'll have peaks and troughs of of interest but i'd like to think that i'll take something good from all of it um you know uh it's and it's refreshing to hear somebody say that they don't agree with us and, and aren't making a big song and dance about it and getting nasty about it i mean i'm tempted to think you know the people that don't like it don't understand it which is an incredibly patronizing thing to do and <laughs> <it> is... <laughs> actually <laughs> not that the rest of what you're saying doesn't sound patronizing really Simon. <laughs> really i wasn't aware i was being patronizing at all he looks very sincere i've got to say yeah okay sincere maybe that's a better word for it Sinc- it's yeah. like the end of an episode of the original series of beverly hills 90210 <laughs> oh my god god no never watched it um I suppose the just the point I'm making is that how nice to have civilized listeners who don't necessarily disagree, you know, don't necessarily agree with us and are quite prepared to listen, but you know, have their own thoughts as well. Yes. Anyway, we, I, I wrote back we, to him yeah. and I said to him, "You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong." <laughs> this is Doyle. <laughs> Indeed. You will. You will. You will. Okay, then I think that's it for tonight. Yeah. In which case, I'm not going to say what we're doing next week. Unless somebody would like to suggest something. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) No idea. Have we still Um, got any idea what we're going to be talking about for the next 100 episodes? I don't know. (laughs) I'm not quite sure how long we've got left now before our birthday episodes. Because we've got a couple of things planned for our birthday. Obviously, the questions podcast, but something else rather special as well. Mm. And I'm not sure if we've got a fortnight before then or just a single week before then. Because I was going to suggest we do another season review and do one from the new series that we've not done yet. Because we've not done David Tennant one yet. No. Tell you what, maybe we should. Because we'll have to split that across two episodes. Maybe we can do one before the birthday and the second half of that series afterwards if we need to. Back Go on, the, Simon, what were you going to say? I was going to say, back in the midst of time when we first started talking to each other on Facebook in our private little thing that we have to discuss mm-hmm. these episodes, I'm sure there's a big list that we can have a look back at of subjects that we were always talking about doing a podcast. It's probably something quite important we've missed. Oh, no, I've looked at that list any number of times. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are things on there like comedy in Doctor Who. Doctor's Hats, yeah, we could always talk about that. Um, yeah, suggestions from Lee, like Doctor's Hats. <laughs> mm. TARDIS console buttons. 
No, it's, it's well, we did the TARDIS episode. We did, we did. Now let's do let's do series two, series two or series four. We've just talked about surprise <sighs> Pompeii. Oh, I know we'll which one Simon's going to want to go for. Yeah, well, do you not want to save that one for later then? Which one should we do then? I'd quite like to do series two because I think that's the one where the new series bedded in, kind of consolidated itself. Yeah, and yeah, it's also quite experimental. Not perhaps as experimental as the two series that followed, mm. but they almost felt like they were being experimental because that's what the series did. Mm. Whereas in series two, it felt like it was being experimental because it was trying things out. Mm. So I think it's the more interesting of the three David Tennant series. So I'd kind of like to do that, shall okay. we? Season two it yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Have yeah. I persuaded you all? Oh, yeah. Okay, right. In that case, next week, series two, there'll be a vote on the Facebook page as per usual. And until then, I was JR. I was Lee. Bye bye, Duggan. (laughs) And I was a very patronising Simon. (laughs) Good night, y'all. We'll speak again soon. Good, good night, right. good night, y'all. I know. I, <laughs> I, I start to say good night before I realised. Far too many American podcasts. <laughs> no, I'm just too tired. I started to say good night before I realised. I know you've got a catchphrase for the end as well, you know. So I had to somehow get back to the catchphrase. So I had to chuck a y'all on it to give me an excuse to say we'll speak again soon. Uh, so halfway classic. through good night, it deviated into American. <laughs> Because I was also thinking, oh, we've talked about America. I can get away with this. (laughs) Oh, God. Hopefully. Oh, dear.